Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Awesome. Well, welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. We're joined today by another special guest who comes from a different part of the oil field that many of the listeners may or may not be too familiar with. Matt and I are here today with Josh Young, Portfolio Manager at Bison Interest. So Josh deals with the business side of oil and gas, primarily focused on investing, small cap company, recapitalization, and oil and gas deals. Josh, welcome to the show, my man. Great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Josh, I wish I could say we're breaking you into the podcast world, but this is not your first rodeo, is it? Uh, no, I've been uh, fortunate to get some exposure over the last couple of years, and uh, but it is exciting to be on this one. This is an exciting one. Yeah, no, that's that's good. That's good. And so, um, if the listeners are, you know, I guess interested in hearing more, can you just quickly plug where else you you've been? Uh, just so I, you know, again, if if people are interested in what you have to say, you may be diving further. Are there other other ones that you were on that we could share? Sure. Yeah. So I was on. Uh, DRW's uh, hot take of the day uh, a couple months ago. Um, and then intermittently, I've been on Al Jazeera kind of randomly, um, as okay. well as just uh, quoted in some other like news articles and stuff like that. Um, so actually not that many podcasts per se, but uh, one of my friends likes to joke um, about uh, Al Jazeera using me in Houston to talk about you know global oil and gas stuff. It's always kind of interesting dynamic and very different yeah. perspective than what's usually on there. I got you. So who I know, I'm not too familiar with that. What is that one about? So so Al Jazeera is um, a news network that actually was set up by Al Gore uh, after he kind of won, kind of lost the presidential election uh, in 2000. <laughs> Um, he went into new media and green investments. Um, and uh, it's amazing how people that advocate for stuff politically, uh, when they're unsuccessful on the political front, go and make crazy money from the connections and from government subsidies and other fun stuff like that. So anyway, they set up a, a news, like an international news network, and they sold it to Al Jazeera had been just a local like cable station in, I think, Abu Dhabi or Qatar. And um, they bought Al, Al Gore's kind of like international news network and they made it like Al Jazeera International. So No way. Yeah. Huh. We'll have to, I'll have to dabble in that. It sounds a little interesting, especially if you were on it. <laughs> there there was pretty, one. Uh, sorry. Uh, I was going to say, I think it's pretty funny because to see, like, it's fun to watch Josh on TV when he sends me the link or, or what have you. But it's also really entertaining. Like, if you're just sort of skimming through the Wall Street Journal and there's some little like energy tidbit. It'll be randomly like says Josh Young of Bison Interest and like like just a little quip or something and I'm like oh these are, it's just really amusing to see somebody you know turn up in these these places you know that sometimes he tells me about and sometimes you just happen across <laughs> no kidding hey, no, it's okay. um so so the highlight of that actually I think and Matt you noticed this uh, was around the time that. Um, that the Saudi oil fields were attacked last year, which is, I mean, it feels like 10 years ago or 20 years ago that that happened. Um, <laughs> I was on a panel on Al Jazeera and it was me 
and um, a it looked like political scientist who was in his basement, um, and <laughs> um, a uh, guy who was somewhere in Yemen or something unclear with a sword. And so uh, my new kind of like goal in life is to be on a uh, news uh, panel with a sword. That's a- <laughs> that. That is very interesting. And he just like in the background, he had a sword or he was holding one or like, what did no, he was like wearing it in his oh. Like, belt? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you could, that would, that would definitely put up a challenge against DRW and his tiger shoes. If you started rocking out with a sword, I think that would make for some good entertainment value for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so of course, uh, I, and if the listeners haven't noticed, there's certainly some dialogue between Josh and Matt. And so of course the question I have to ask first is how do you know Matt, Josh? I think, Matt's mentioned your name on, on several occasions, but I never really got the connection. So how do you guys know each other? So, so full credit to Vincent and Elkins, a local law firm, um, I guess, technically an international law firm, but they, they're based here in Houston. And they're very active in oil and gas law, both on the M&A side, as well as you know, restructuring and, and other advisory. And um, they very generously host a young professionals networking thing. Back pre-COVID, you could actually go and like meet people. Right. And so I got to meet Matt at one of those events. And uh, it's great. Like We're um, involved in a number of different kind of young professionals and energy events and um, different groups. And so you know, full credit to v and And then uh, you know, we were going to other similar things and had a lot of friends in common and had a really good conversation at that initial event and just you know, managed to stay in touch. Ah, very and cool. then we became drinking buddies, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, Matt's good at that for sure. So is he as difficult as a friend as he is a coworker? I had to ask. No, no, Matt is actually incredibly kind and generous. I actually, when I met him, I was like, hey, so I, I um, knew uh, some of the senior management of the company through just my general, like my day job. I'd met them at conferences and stuff. And I was like, hey, he tells the story better than I've heard it before uh, in terms of like, you know, his career trajectory and how he ended up at his place and the um, the freedoms he was allowed translating over to generating new business and so on. And so I was, I was very impressed by that. Um, in the business of investing, a big part of it is the business of storytelling combined with uh, authenticity. And so I thought he kind of captured that kind of meld of those two things really well. And so that was obviously very compelling in terms of uh, getting to know someone who was able to kind of match those two things uh, well. That's no, that's interesting. I mean, certainly on our side of things with what he does here at AES, that that aligns very well. Um, and and Matt, now that you've been put, you know, in the spotlight, what do you have to say? I mean, I'm I'm flattered. I was going to give Josh a little bit more time to keep going, but uh, that was <laughs> good. Um, it, it was funny because when Josh and I met, basically, it was it was one of those where I think you know Josh had left a, a larger outfit and, and kind of gone off on his own. I'd gone from a big company to a small company, and and I think we shared like some, you know, appreciation of the freedoms that we had and, and how much we more we enjoyed our work. Um, and then the other part of it is just, um, I, I don't know, I just love it. You've already heard it, but Josh has more than just a few opinions and he loves putting them out there and just kind of testing the waters with how people are going to react. And so kind of amongst our, our group of friends, it's just, it's just really fun because he'll just sling something out there. And, you know, one of our friends is fairly soft-spoken and you can kind of see his like, Kind of move in his chair and and kind of then you know very softly like respond and then you know another just between kind of a, a little crew of us uh we we just have a lot of fun and, and a lot of it centers around uh josh's 
comfort at turning off a filter and just seeing what happens. Um, so <laughs> we've, we've had a great time, uh, you know, as friends doing those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, well, during the times of heightened sensitivity that we're in right now, I think that's much needed. So I applaud you, Josh. Thank you. Yeah. And there was actually one other thing. So we talked about um, specifics around uh, disclosure of well results and kind of the different things people were saying versus what they were actually seeing. Mm. And so um, I think at the time we managed to horrify some people because I think this was right around when that SPAC was going public for Alta Mesa. I can't help myself. Uh, and <laughs> sorry, Matt. Um, and so we were talking about this and I think there were some people at the table that we were sitting at who were involved in that structuring and financing. Um, and from my perspective, it was just a bunch of BS. Like it didn't, the claims that were made didn't make sense. There's, I think, ongoing litigation around that because it, you know, went from going public to bankrupt in 18 months or mm -hmm. something like that. And so, you know, it's a very short amount of time, which raises a lot of questions. Um, and so I think we kind of bonded on that. I don't think that Matt necessarily 100% agreed with me, but it was still, I think he liked uh, my willingness to take a very substantial variant view, especially because there were people at the table that were making lots of money and fees, whether from private equity fees or from legal fees on that go public transaction. So, you know, I guess like for better or for worse, being able to identify that as it was happening, as these guys were making all this money on the transaction, um, you know, I, I think that was a good uh, bonding moment. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, I definitely want to dive into the weeds of some of the things you touched on, but kind of backing up a little bit, um, where where are you from? And, and obviously, you've made a pretty good career choice by getting onto the business and finance side of things. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, first and foremost, you know, where did you grow up and, and how did you get into, you know, the business side of oil and gas? So I, I grew up in Santa Monica, California. So it's very obvious that I would go into uh, oil and gas. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, uh, my grandpa had gotten his math PhD at University of Chicago. And so um, when I was looking for colleges, I uh, applied there because it was free to apply because uh, I guess because he had gone there. And um, I got in, fortunately, and I visited and they had a symposium in honor of Milton Friedman. And so I got to, as a 17-year-old, hear Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and Bob Lucas and like five other University of Chicago Nobel Prize winning economists all talking about incentive theory and kind of Milton Friedman's innovations. And I you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life exactly and didn't really know where I wanted to go for school. And so you know, that kind of got me on the path of, hey, like I like how these guys think and I like what they look at and like how they see the world. And so I'm going to go to the University of Chicago and I'm going to study economics. And so over the course of that, um, while I was there, I kind of realized, hey, I don't want to be an academic. I want to take these interesting theories and apply them in real life. Um, so I went into management consulting, which I guess is not like a very obvious uh, kind of direct connection, but it felt like I could go apply economic theories, figure stuff out, like, you know, make a difference somehow. Um, so. Uh, management consulting for a couple of years, private equity for a little bit, uh, worked for a multi-billion dollar family office. And over that course of time, transitioned from like figuring stuff out and fixing companies to just purely finding interesting investments, which I had been doing kind of for fun since I was a teenager, um, getting to actually get paid to do that. So that was kind of the career trajectory over to investments. And then at that family office, I started focusing more and more on oil and gas investments and there was a point where it just made sense. The things I was doing were working extremely well. 
And I felt like there was room to further my career by going out and um, doing that independently versus working for a large investment firm. So, so the oil and gas side, did it just present so much more opportunity that focusing there would be a better trajectory versus what you were doing? I mean, clearly you thought that you outweigh the benefits and, and maybe, you know, good or bad, but I mean, did oil and gas attract you like in a certain way, or was it more just the actual potential that was on the other side? So the context of it was like, I had been investing kind of personally in oil and gas companies through this initial kind of, we're running out of oil phase in the early 2000s. Mm. And my thought was, and it still is to some extent that we're running out of cheap oil. Like we're not necessarily running out of oil altogether. Like that may eventually happen. Um, but we're certainly running out of cheap, easy to access oil. Um, and it's, you know, it's a reason for chemicals companies to be around. It's a reason for other oil technology companies to be around. Like it's getting harder and harder, which translates to more, you know, energy and other intensity to extract oil, um, which should over time translate to a much higher price for the commodity. So there's been a lot of weird stuff that's happened that we can talk about um, that have, you know, kind of thrown off oil from its up into the right price trajectory, which it saw for the early part of my career. Um, and my thought was, look, like I can invest in anything, but here is something where it kind of intuitively makes sense. I like a lot of the people in the business. Um, I don't like a lot of people in the business too, but you know, like in any business that's going to happen. Um, but I think there's, you know, this attraction of engineers and attraction of um, geologists and other kind of like science-based, reality-based people. Um, so that was appealing. Um, and so there was kind of this combination of, hey, like this is an interesting place to spend time. The more you learn about it, the more advantage you get. The bigger your network is, the more you're able to vet opportunities um, if you're open-minded and willing to accept contrary uh, information relative to your prior expectations. Um, and then I think in the end, we're going to see much, much higher oil prices. And that mm. probably feels very weird six years into a very pronounced downturn. Um, but in the end, we will see much, much higher oil prices. And that makes it, there are a few things where they're like extremely likely, and it's just a question of time. And I think higher oil prices is one of those things. So would you say though, with, I mean, obviously with, I, I call it Corona economy, but with everything that's happened, do you think that's really shifted demand patterns to where are, do you think we've reached peak oil, not necessarily from a technological standpoint, but peak oil demand? Uh, not at all. I mean, not even close uh, for a lot of reasons. So um, I think people, I think there's been kind of this narrative and there's um, uh, I think Soros captured this well with his theory of reflexivity where like people will have an idea and their idea and acting on the idea will impact the world, which will further their idea, which will further impact the world, which will further their idea and so on um, in a cycle until that breaks. And um, you, know, you used to say, uh, when I see a bubble, I buy it. Um, so uh, there's, there's a narrative that's kind of been captured partly actually like very weirdly by people that own news companies who are heavily invested in green or alternative energy personally. It's like this very weird thing where that's allowed, but other things aren't. Um, and so they're very heavily invested. And so there's this narrative that, hey, alternative energy is eating the world, right? It's going to win and it's winning really fast. The reality is that we're, from what I can tell, very far from demand getting absorbed by alternative energy. And 
if you accept that, right, and you look at kind of the global kind of consumption of transportation fuel, the global consumption of inputs for plastics, the global use of plastics, especially post-corona, um, you, know, you see that this wasn't a alternative energy winning event. This was a global pandemic where governments may have overreacted and where the world economy got shut off for a period of time. And oil as a proxy for the world economy reflected um, that shut off. It didn't reflect some sort of like alternative consumption, uh, you know, alternative for people to consume. And so as consumption downs, we're seeing huge shifts in consumption, really higher oil consumption on the backside of this, you know, a year or two from now. Right. Matt, do you have any comments on, on, on Josh's thoughts on that? I mean, I, I want to agree with him. Uh, you know, sure. and I think that's one thing I, I think a lot of our folks want to hear is, you know, as, as an engineer, and I, I asked Josh these, these questions too, where, you know, he's, he's totally only on the finance side. We're, we're trying to get the wells drilled. And one of the, one of the really like frustrating things is, you know, you hear this, you know, prevailing narrative that we're all going to be out of work soon and, you know, there's no need for you and what you're doing is all bad. Um, and in reality, you know, I, I think we know energy is critical to, you know, the, the health, safety and livelihoods of a lot of people. And um, not only that, there's you look at the problems with alternative energy or the, or the questions that just nobody seems to want to answer. You say, how, how does this make sense? And I think, you know, the thing I, I tend to get from Josh is, well, I'm looking to take advantage of that uh, because the harsh reality doesn't seem to, you know, that realization will come where. We need more energy than we can, you know, practically produce with these alternatives that we told we're we're going to displace everything. Um, and so, you know, that's that's one of the interesting things is is just you know the level of detail Josh is able to look into and kind of say, hey, something's not adding up, and and I can make money off of it. Um, so that's that's kind of what I would I would add to to his comments. Right. So so Josh, with regards to on the natural gas side, I mean. Obviously, we're seeing uh, a lot of power generation through natural gas. The the sort of the trajectory is pretty quite positive on that. What are your thoughts on the outlook on on natural gas from from power generation? I mean, specifically, obviously, coal and everything. There's a lot of decommissioning on coal plants. I mean, what are your thoughts? Are you, are you long short on natural gas, or what's your kind of outlook on that? So natural gas is more complicated, so it's much easier to extract natural gas from source rock than it is to extract oil. So um, natural gas, unlike oil, has not gotten much more energy intensive to extract. So there was a measure back when people were talking about peak oil, uh, EROI, so like you know, the energy return on investment. So you use X amount of energy to extract Y amount of energy. And so uh, like, it was one of the problems with like oil sands mining is you used almost as much energy to get the oil as you did as the oil could produce or the bitumen could produce similar to ethanol, right? Like ethanol like uses almost as much energy between the fertilizer and the harvesting the corn and especially corn based ethanol. It's just, it's a mess. It's not a really additive process. Uh, shale gas, at least in the Marcellus and the Haynesville and the Motney in Canada, it has a very high EROI. So from a price perspective, there is a price where natural gas clears, at least for North America. 
Um, and that price isn't like 10 times where it's trading right now on an inflation adjusted basis. Like it's probably 50% higher, 100% higher maybe, but like it's not 300% or 400% higher. So as an investment, it's interesting, right? Some natural gas companies have huge amounts of resource. A couple of mine actually got bought out this year. It's kind of annoying that they got bought for a premium, but not reflective of their economic value. Um, so it's good. And I own some, but I think the story is more interesting on the oil side because it's harder to get. So if you can own a resource that's producing that you don't have to put a lot of capital into, I think over time that pays off a lot better on the oil side um, than almost any activity on the natural gas side. Interesting. No, I appreciate that perspective. Um, so I, I want to kind of switch gears here. So for the folks out there that may not be familiar, can can you give a high level explanation of how oil and like oil and gas or different oil and gas companies are are funded? And I think because a lot of people hear private equity and a lot of people hear publicly traded. Can you give kind of a brief explanation of the difference and then maybe why certain companies do things differently based on that? Sure. So, so almost no companies are getting funded right now. So this is a purely <laughs> historical and theoretical conversation. Okay. Um, and <laughs> it gets into part of what I do that's different, I think, which is I don't go in usually and fund new companies. I generally come in and buy things that were exciting at very large discounts to what they cost to set up and at likely large discounts to what they would sell for if they just sold all their assets at the moment that I was buying the stock. So um, I guess I observe this a lot and having observed it a lot versus actually having done it, you know, I have a different perspective than if you got a, you know, private equity fund manager on the phone um, or on this who, you know, was in the business of essentially venture capital of starting and forming and growing new businesses. Um, and again, just like one more on the last topic related to this, and then we'll get into the formation and whatever of these companies and funding. Um, one of the most exciting things to happen, we had all these different negative things that happened for oil prices. One of the biggest negatives was a double bubble of credit um, availability for companies that were destroying value and equity availability for companies that were destroying value. And so there was this huge boom in like land plus like drilling a couple wells and then reselling for 10 or 20 or 50 or whatever thousand dollars an acre, which was obviously unsustainable and fundamentally challenged both for the buyers of that, as well as for the people that were funding those, but weren't able to exit in time. Um, so that was a problem. And the low cost of interest on loans that were extremely unlikely to ever pay out. So like whiting just emerged from bankruptcy, like those whiting bonds, when they issued them, like it was somewhat obvious that those were a um, return-free risk, as the bond guys say. So um, there was a lot of return-free risk that was taken on the credit side combined with return-free risk, or in some cases return, but like you know, we're seeing on the tail end of these portfolio companies in private equity, there was a lot of drilling and a lot of activity that was uneconomic. So um, that's, I guess, some helpful background. Maybe the way that oil companies get started is usually there's like a geologist or an engineer with an idea, and they go to people that they know and say, hey, do you want to invest in this thing? And we're going to make a lot of money, whether it's family or friends or whatever. Um, if it's a good idea, usually the family and friends fund it and it turns out well, generally. Um, if it's a bad idea, they don't. And so then they have to go find other people to fund it. Um, and <laughs> in the second. Oh, I just was laughing because it's just, you know, if this doesn't work, let's just go find money somewhere else and use their money and <laughs> keep going. 
Yeah, early on in my career, I found this uh, these consultants uh, based, I think, in Oklahoma, and they called it the lobster theory, where if you're eating, if you're getting a Maine lobster, right, the best Maine lobsters are caught by the the fishermen in Maine, and I mean, and uh, the very best ones are either kept by the fishermen for their own families to eat, or you know, the people that run the markets there, where you bring in the lobsters, they take the very best ones and keep them themselves. Then the next best ones are bought fresh at those markets and flown to like five-star restaurants all around the world. And then the next best ones are bought by, you know, like the Costco buyers and the other kind of like high-end specialty buyers that provide them to good stores and to good restaurant distributors. Um, when you walk into a like Red Lobster in Omaha, right? Like <laughs> the lobster that you're seeing uh, versus at the market or on the boat in Maine is very, very different in terms of quality and in terms of, you know, uh, a lot of different aspects. So for oil deals, their argument was, look, by the time you're seeing this deal in Los Angeles or New York or Tokyo or whatever, like there are a lot of people that have not bought that deal. And so um, you, know, you really want to be careful. So, um, so I think if you look at a lot of companies, the history of those companies has actually played out um, in line with that, right? So like picking on Alta Mesa again, like when you need to go get the less sophisticated money and do it through a SPAC or do it through some other sort of like weird funding mechanism. And if you've gathered a lot of money from unsophisticated investors who are not like local and or the local guys have really aggressively passed on investing because they understand that it's way more risky or way lower return than represented, um, that's like a scary prospect. Um, the flip side is when you come into a company in a particular area and like the management team is buying a lot of the stock because it's fallen a lot, but they're having good results. Their friends are buying the stock. Um, you like talk to different corporate acquisition people or different competitor CEOs who are like, man, those guys are doing well. Like, I can't believe the market's not valuing that. Like, that's a very, very different mechanism. But again, from your guys' perspective, that's not really helpful because I'm not coming in to like fund a new well. I'm coming in to buy stock at a discount where it just, you know, the market, um, you know, in the same way as it'll value Tesla at like a thousand times sales or whatever, uh, <laughs> sometimes it'll value an oil company at like two times cash flow or one times cash flow, which is just unreasonably cheap. So that, that's, I think, more where maybe that's some of the history of like how these businesses get funded. Uh, but also kind of where I fit in and where Bison fits into to that uh, value chain. I got you. So how would you, oh, sorry, Matt, were you saying something? I, I was just saying, so so what do you think? I think the big question a lot of a lot of us have now on our end is, you know, you've kind of talked about these bubbles and, and you know, so there's plenty of, of problems that are, are hopefully getting worked out. But I mean, you say long-term that, you know, the price of oil will probably go up. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know what timetable that is, but do you think there's like some fundamental things in the market that just kind of have to get rinsed out? And uh, I mean, I guess we're always trying to stay optimistic with a lot of our, our listeners as far as, you know, it's tough out there, but, you know, the, the strong surviving gets stronger in, in tough times. Um, but kind of, you know, not without asking for a crystal ball, are there, are there specific things that you're looking for? Or just generally speaking, things you, you say, okay, once, you know, these companies merge or that, that's one thing DRW talks a lot of, you know, some of the, a lot of these companies need to merge. There need to be fewer players. But like once that's kind of washed out, the dirt's washed out of the laundry, like it, it could be healthy again. Um, I mean, is that, would you agree with that or, or are there things you're looking for in particular? 
Yeah. I mean, look, like, I think it's funny that when something is popular, people are willing to overlook a lot. And when things are unpopular, they're willing to identify every possible problem and then create problems. So again, like picking on Tesla, like one of my friends was very aggressively short the stock and talked about it a lot publicly. Not me. I'm not like referencing myself in third person. Uh, but uh, just to be <laughs> fully clear, transparent, I'm not involved in the stock, whatever. But like, he actually covered his short position when he realized in his view that they were just making up their financials. That He felt, I think it was like six months ago, a year ago, there was some report they put out that from his perspective, it was just fake. And so, um, you know, you don't really see that so much for oil and gas companies because there's so much scrutiny. People are worried about, hey, is this well returning a 30% return or a 50% return? And oh, like, you know, there's a lot of debate about that and on FinTwit and on whatever. So, you know, that's the level of scrutiny on oil and gas versus on like Tesla, where like they literally just doesn't even make sense. Like they they didn't sell enough cars and there's not enough VINs in existence to make up for like one year of claimed sales. Um, so, you know, there's like really weird, obvious things. So I think, you know, you want to pay attention to like where you're at in a cycle in terms of how much negativity you're allowing yourself to accept. Um, so I think for oil and gas, it's been so bad for so long that like most, like you should be biased towards the positive, I think, six years into a really extreme downturn um, versus uh, 10 years or 12 years into a, um, I guess, you know, bull market or whatever for tech and new tech and new energy and whatever. Um, you should be biased, I think, to the downside in terms of just the things that people are believing or thinking about about these things. So in general, I think like the more negative people are about something, the more positive you should be or I am. And the more positive people are about something, the more negative you should be or I am just because it's just so easy to kind of get caught up in whatever the story is. So, I mean, to the message to engineers and geologists and everyone kind of involved in this sector, look like things will get a lot better from a lot of different perspectives. Um, and part of why you know that is because everyone hates it and everyone is sad and everyone's moving out of the industry and getting laid off and so on. So if you have a job, it's great. And if you can do interesting things in your job, great, because it will get a lot better. And again, it matter of time. And I don't know, my crystal ball is broken. Like, I don't know when, but like, you don't necessarily need to know when as much as you need to know that, Hey, this is a important thing with a high EROI that helps feed people in India and China and third world countries that are starving. And it's a very important kind of humanitarian thing to be doing in life. So it's important that it's good. And it's important that the worse it sounds and the more negative news articles there are and the more negative everyone is, the more exciting it is to be involved in the space. Nice. No, that's really neat. I always used to say, and I still say it is, it's chaos breeds innovation. I think I tend to run towards the chaos to see where there's opportunity. And it sounds like you're, you're in a, you kind of have a similar mindset there. So uh, that's a huge nugget to take away. And I think, like you said, so many people get caught up and they get drawn to the hype, but then it's like, if you take a step back and really just evaluate everything, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things happening uh, on the outskirts that you may not realize that present opportunity. Um, one thing that I've noticed just by scrolling LinkedIn is uh on your stuff is, is you, you tend to have some interest in Canada. Um, you know, you mentioned the Montney and, and a few other things. Um, and, and I noticed on your, on your, uh, your page there, you mentioned Crescent Point. So what, what's your relationship or what's your thoughts on the Canadian side of oil and gas? Cause you know, CES is our parent company who's out of Calgary. Um, and myself, you know, being Canadian, I have a lot of ties to the Canadian oil field. Can you give us some perspective on, on what's going on up there and maybe some outlook on that? 
Sure. So I guess I forgot to put in the disclaimer, none of this is investment advice, you know, invest at your own risk. This is purely for entertainment and education. Um, and I actually do have a very small investment position in CES. This is not an endorsement. I may sell my stock at any time, whatever. Um, so, um, and, and this isn't the place, I guess, to really talk about that. It's just important to have the appropriate disclosures um, yeah. in place. So, um, so Canada got way less popular, way faster than the U.S. did. Um, in this oil downturn. So even in 2015, there were investors who were fully divesting. I think like Fidelity was in the process of fully divesting from Canada by like early 2016 from Canadian oil and gas. Um, the local pension funds have been dumping everything they can related to Canadian oil and gas for years, kind of embarrassingly. Um, there was actually this thing that came out today, CPP, the big Toronto, whatever based uh, pension fund, they, they've been investing in Chinese coal companies, but divesting from like fairly low environmental impact Canadian natural gas. So it's wow. a very weird, like messed up place, right? So the more messed up it is, the more negative people are, the lower the valuations, the more interested I am, right? Yeah. So, you know, uh, so I actually ended up taking over a Canadian publicly traded oil and gas company that was called RMP Energy. And I did that because they were kind of giving up. They had sold an asset in the middle of 2016, which was probably the worst time to sell an asset, except for now, um, you know, uh, <laughs> the early 2020. Um, so the, it was a terrible time to sell. It was kind of obvious they were, you know, uh, having problems and kind of giving up to some extent. They got a really bad price. Um, the company that bought it, their stock went up a lot immediately on the announcement of that transaction. You know, so good for them, bad for RMP. I, I figured out that they had a very, very valuable set of assets that the market was not appreciating and um, had a vision for the company where, you know, unfortunately, there was a lot of dissension in their board. There was dissension in their management team. There wasn't a clear vision. Um, and they were kind of really depressed. And it was really just a hard situation. There were a lot of personal things going on. And I like the people that were running it. I like their board. I have a lot of respect for those people. It was just a really hard situation. And their stock was down from $10 to 70 cents. And so mm. I came in and they allowed me to join their board. I helped them restructure their board, restructure the team, sold off assets that were not core for actually like more than the market cap at the time, which was kind of cool. Oh, wow. And then um, was able to help uh, clean the company up and position it well enough that we ended up getting bought out on a hostile bid. And it's interesting because I think it's important to talk about this less for like my track record or whatever. Like it's a cool story, but like um, we were able to earn a profit for that. So from the day I became a board member of the company in January, 2017 till when we sold the company uh, in this kind of hostile process, uh, for a premium, we, we sold it for, I think it worked out to almost a 20% premium versus the stock price the day I came in, um, in a time frame where the average motney focused oil and gas company stock was down about 45%. So um, there was this tremendous opportunity coming in where everyone was like depressed and worried and like, oh, is this going to go bankrupt? Is this going to whatever? Like everyone was worried about their jobs. They're all worried about whatever. And there was this great opportunity to come in and add some absolute value, right? It wasn't a like 5x return, but like tremendous relative value where, you know, we were able to avoid another 50% decline and actually mm -hmm. generate a cash profit that was delivered to shareholders. So that was, uh, I think, so I guess getting back to the Canada story, I think Canada in general, there are these great opportunities in oil and gas investments there. And the value was there earlier. 
um, because it was hated and the values there now as oil and gas overall is hated even more. Um, the companies there have been more rationally managed for a few years now because there was less capital available to them. Right. And so activities that are going on are higher rate of return. They're more carefully managed. The decline rates of the companies in general are lower. And so it's just like a almost it's weird. It's almost like a safer place where there's better returns on invested capital and where they're already making the transition. They're like a couple of years ahead of the U.S. companies in terms of lowering decline rates, only investing in highest rate of return stuff um, and with like much more focus on governance than we've seen in the U.S. so far. We're seeing right. it now, but like a few years ahead. Huh. That's interesting. So, so summarizing all that, there's certainly some positive outlook for, you know, Canadian oil field. It's, it's not just going to get wiped away by, you know, political resistance and then, you know, everything's imported and they don't drill a single well. Like that's not the case, obviously. Right. And like to, in the defense of the investors that were selling in 2015 and 2016, one, everything's gone down a lot there, right? So like they were right to get out. And two, there was a radical left-wing government that took control of the province of Alberta. And I think it was beginning of 2015, middle of 2015, and they were voted out last year. And so um, there was a time frame where not only was the federal government of Canada and were the funding kind of partners, the banks and the pension funds kind of behaving irrationally, negatively, claiming it was uh, related to the uh, climate, but obviously not as they went and funded like the dirtiest coal projects and other random crap around the world, um, just not their own stuff. So it was obviously <laughs> political and very weird. Um, but like the Alberta province itself was shooting itself in the foot by having just abysmal kind of like Chavez style management of their province. And so fortunately, that's changed. And you know, maybe it's a little offsides for me to talk about local politics in a place, but hey, if you want to adopt a radical left-wing platform in a resource-producing state, you're going to get a bad outcome. I mean, it's just like this has happened across the world every time people have done it. So fortunately, that's changed. And so hopefully um, with this kind of new provincial administration and with a rollback of taxes and regulations and other kind of issues... Um, you know, maybe there's actually like a more positive business environment in, in Alberta. Cool. No, that's certainly a lot better than what I've heard uh, <laughs> as of late. So I uh, appreciate you shining some light on the, our Northern brothers and sisters up there. Um, for, you know, moving forward, obviously, I hope we've hit a pretty good inflection point with regards to the coronavirus. And hopefully, I mean, demand seems to be picking up again. For companies that have managed to survive, um, just maybe by the skin of their teeth, What's the biggest word of advice for, for oil field companies, not only to survive, but but to maintain a good level of sustainable you know, uh, success moving forward in an environment where oil prices may not, well, in, let's say you know, within the next few years, get to $60, $70. I mean, what does that transition look like? And what do people should be focused on, you think? So, so uh, I read this great book a while ago. Um, the it was called management and it was by i think Harold Genin or Howard Genin um he uh he was the CEO of I ITT which was a giant conglomerate similar to GE kind of the modern equivalent would be like Google like one of the highest paid most successful best performing stocks it was in the nifty 50 whatever and he talked about how his career progressed the way it did and he achieved the success he did because he stayed employed during the great depression and he didn't have an exciting job, and it wasn't a sexy job. He was the accountant for some 
company, I think it was like a manufacturer or a uh, distributor or something. And he ended up just by like working really hard when everyone was depressed. And like, as that company went through a series of layoffs and actually ending up, I think as like the CFO or controller or something of that business. And by just working really hard, having very low expectations for compensation, very low expectations for glamour, and just accepting that by working, he was able to learn and advance his career. Um, you know, I think that was a really so he he identified that as his like uh, pivotal kind of period of time where other people that he ended up competing with later were unemployed for periods of time there, like had more contract jobs. They were always looking for like more money and more kind of sexy stuff. And he was just staying employed, working hard, grinding it out. And by doing that, I mean not in, those weren't his words, obviously, like he used. 1960s language for it, but and 1970s language for it, but you know, by essentially grinding it out, he was able to advance his career. Um, I think, unfortunately, there are still some remnants of this like peak in oil prices a few years ago, and kind of this like froth. So, um, you know, Elon Musk is absurdly compensated for Tesla, right? And it's like really easy to see that, uh, but their stock is up, right? So, you know, on one hand, he's paid a ridiculous amount of money. Um, and like Jeff Bezos is like the richest person in the world from his stock having gone up a lot and he gets all these options and all this other stuff. Um, there are oil companies that are managed um, and compensated in a similar style where there's egregious excessive compensation that is not tied to the risk that the management teams are taking and not tied to the outcomes. Um, right. And so I won't point specific fingers, but just in general, there's still a restructuring that's happening where and resetting of expectations, there's still excess compensation across the industry. And I, I think it's just, it, this is like a hard thing to hear, but like a lot of people still in oil and gas are overpaid relative to the value that they're adding. And that doesn't mean you have to be depressed. It means work really hard, accept what you're doing within the industry appreciate the value that you're adding to whatever entity you're at or whatever um, business line you're in, obviously uh, try to grow, try to get paid, uh, you know, in line with the value that you're adding, but you know, there's still like some governance stuff that needs to get worked through. It's way less bad than it was six years ago. Um, but there's still some residual stuff that needs to get worked through. So on one hand, it's very promising and it's great. If you're employed in the business, keep your job, work really hard. If you're not employed, get a job, it doesn't necessarily need to be as advanced as you were before. It doesn't need to be as high paid. Learn stuff, advance your career by working really hard. Um, but also, like, you know, if you're the CEO of a company where the stock's down 90%, like, maybe you shouldn't be paid millions of dollars a year. And, like, maybe it's appropriate for you to get fired or whatever if you have led an entity that has failed in many different capacities. And so, you know, I think there's kind of like this balance between those. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great way to sum it up. And and one thing I'll say is my my old man who's, you know, rest in peace, but he always told me, Justin, it's it's funny how lucky you get when you work hard. And that's, you know, kind of going back to you just work, you know, continue to work hard, learn. Um, and and you know, in you know, over time you will advance. Sometimes you gotta take a step forward, sometimes you take a step back. But all in all, like you said, just kind of you know, keep your head up and work hard and, and things will, you know, typically pan out um the way you want them to, hopefully. So now that that's a great word of advice, Matt. Do you have any uh, other questions before? I want to respect Josh's time here. I know we're coming up close to an hour here, so. No, I think the only comment I wanted to add to what Josh is saying, just I, I want to point out, you know, we have a lot of field folks. We have a lot of other people that, you know, 
they feel pretty far removed from the office, from senior management, from, you know, whoever. And um, his point still holds true. I mean, no, no matter where you're at, um, there's opportunities here. Uh, you know, your career is going to grow. And, and just, I think a, a great example of, you know, situations where there have been downturns, it's, it's like you're kind of one of the few people there is you start wearing a few more different hats. You get broader experience. You get opportunities to do things that in better times they would have maybe a person or a team in charge of something. Um, and that broadens you out and actually makes you more and more qualified. Um, and so I think just kind of being there and working really hard and being willing to do a lot of things that might not fall immediately in your job description um, certainly create a lot of opportunities. And I've seen that throughout my career. I mean, I don't know if this is downturn number three or four, uh, but um, it, I've certainly seen that. And, and I know, you know, my father was in the oil and gas industry and he said, you know, sometimes I got promoted because I was the only one left to turn the lights on at the office, you know? <laughs> um, and that's kind of depressing to think about, but at the same time, um, there was a reason that he was still there and there was a reason uh, that, you know, when things kind of came back and started to grow, um, other people had to look to him for, what to do next or how to be more productive. Um, so I just, uh, I mean, I can't emphasize enough as, as hard as things are, as much as I think everybody's taken a big toll on, you know, their, their mental health through the midst of not being able to interact with people and stay home. Like there is, there is opportunity here, you know, cling to it. Um, and uh, even in oil and gas, even with Josh's pessimism that I get to hear regularly and so, a fair amount of cynicism, there is hope. So that, that's my closing thought. Nice. Well, I think today was more optimistic. So I, I think I think there was a good mix of both in there. But uh, Josh, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for all your input and insight on things. Uh, if people are interested to hear more, uh, you know, maybe on on some some of the work that you've done, I know you published a little bit of articles. You write for Alpha or uh, Seeking Alpha, rather. Uh, are, there, are there any other? Uh, you know, platforms or anything that people can hear more about what you have to say? Yeah, I think we generally put our stuff up on the advice and interest on our website. Um, so under the content section. So not everything that I do, but a lot of the stuff ends up linked on there. And this this should end up on there as well. So um, it's a good good place to, to find uh, what, what we're doing and what we're up to. Awesome. All right, everyone. Well, hey, that's a wrap. Thanks for everyone for listening as always. And if you could, please support the show by leaving a quick review. Also, if you have a great story or any comments, please hop on LinkedIn and reach out to either Matt or I, uh, or you can hit us up at the full line podcast at aesflues.com. Again, Matt, Josh, thanks again for all your time today and everyone out there. Be safe. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the flow line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.